I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. My guest today is Dr. Jason Josephson Storm, Professor of Religion and Chair of Science and Technology Studies at Williams College in Massachusetts. His books include The Invention of Religion in Japan from University of Chicago Press 2012 and The Myth of Disenchantment, Magic, Modernity, and the Birth of Human Sciences from 2017. His upcoming book is Metamodernism, The Future of Theory, also from University of Chicago Press. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry. Available from Trapart Books, 2019. Please visit our publisher's website, www.trapart.net. You can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon, p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash v-a-n-e-s-s-a two three c-a-r-l. Your support is greatly appreciated. Hello there. So it's great uh, to have the opportunity to talk to you and to be on your podcast. Um, it's really fun for me to continue to get to talk about this uh, book and things related to it. I'm, I've been up to my neck in the next project, so it's, it's, but it's fun to kind of remember back and reflect back and um, um, help uh, encourage people to think about this one and keep, um, just sort of keep thinking about this and what was useful to different people about it. I want to apologize also for my uh, COVID uh, beard and hair. This is not my typical presentation, but uh, it's, it's been an insane summer. I'll just put, the, put it that way, and I'm sure I'm not alone in, um, in experiencing that. So, yeah, so here we are um, talking about uh, a bunch of things, psychoanalysis, psychology, the occult, uh, some of which is relevant to this project, um, but it sounds like you also have some interests and some background in that area, too. Why don't you want to tell me how you came to be interested in those overlapping constellations? Sure. Um, well, basically, I trained as a psychologist and a psychoanalyst. But in my training, I kind of got all of my more magical beliefs trained out of me, as I think happens to a lot of people. So things that I was interested in in my teens and early 20s, then, you know, by the time I was done getting a society uh, in psychology, I was like learning the DSM and how to work in the hospital system and what kind of medications people were going to be on and all that sort of thing. Um, and then there wasn't even really any psychoanalysis in a doctorate psychology program. So then I ended up going to psychoanalytic training after graduate school um, and was also pretty disenchanted with um, how much psychoanalysis at least uh, in the States, this is in New York, um, had gone 
far from what I had imagined it was <laughs> and from all the psychoanalysis I read because everything in the training institute was really about ego psychology and making mm. sure people like were shoring up the defenses so that they could be good workers basically mm. and like testing the reality principle and like denying the pleasure principle and um mm. Yeah, it was really not what I expected. So basically, once I was done with all of my training, then I could start reading books that I was interested in again, <laughs> had time for my own interests and other things. And um, I actually did a conference uh, talking about the violence of the like mental health care system and the medical care system after working in hospitals for years and years. Um, so that was in 2015. And then after that conference, which was like really, really heavy, um, very, very serious. Then I wanted to do something more like fun and creative. So then I started having these conferences on psychoanalysis and the arts and the occult. And I invited friends of mine that were like shamanic practitioners or religious studies majors, Western aerotericists, and um, from different Santeria, Kimbanda, Voodoo, um, and invited them to speak with psychoanalysts. And then I threw artists in there as well, because I don't know, when you throw the arts, everything is then more palatable for people it's like uh -huh, oh it's uh -huh. art so now it's okay you know <laughs> so I had artists and mm -hmm. analysts and these occultists uh magical practitioners all speaking together um yeah so that's how that started and it's been really fun we've had two of them now one in London in 2016 mm -hmm. and then one last year in Italy wow I mean that sounds awesome and it sounds like a good synergy of different areas um overlapping but interesting areas yeah that's really cool Exactly. And they were all the areas that I was kind of interested in and practicing. Um, and then it was basically for me, I just got to be very spoiled and have like all my favorite thinkers together in the same space talking to each other. And then, of course, they like became friends and started writing together. And so now there's just all this more material that I get to enjoy. <laughs> very cool. Yeah. And then I came upon your book. Let's say what it's called. The Myth of Disenchantment, Magic, Modernity, and the Birth of the Human Sciences. Yeah, and there's the cover with a very interesting mustached dude here. So maybe when I'm done with COVID, I can shave off the beard and just have the mustache or something like that. <laughs> I know, I probably not. Yeah, um, yeah. so that came out in 2017 um, from University of Chicago Press. And it's my second book. It's, um, it's rather academic, but I think, I hope that it has an impact on people outside of the narrow ivory tower environment that I'm basically based in. Um, and I've been really um, flattered already at the kind of attention and interest it's had from people who have, on very different walks of life who have, um, you know, sent me emails about it or, or, or reviewed it on various publications and what have you. So um, I think that's great. Yeah. Yeah. And how did your book come about? What was your interest? Um, there are a couple ways to think about it. I guess it, you could say it has two different origins. Uh, the, the more proximate origin was that I, um, I'd finished a first book um, about Japan. I had been interested in Japanese intellectuals in the 19th century uh, encountering European vocabularies for the first time and trying to figure out how to translate them. So it was kind of a reverse ethnography, a Japan looking at Europe in the moment when Europe was looking at Japan and I was reading basically a lot of Japanese sources and also Dutch and French and some other things and looking at this two-sided anthropological encounter. And after I finished that book, I, was, I went back to Japan to do some more research. Um, one of the things that was odd in that book was that one of the things that struck Japanese intellectuals in the 19th century, what surprised them was that um, Europeans believed in ghosts. 
it, it didn't necessarily, it wasn't, they didn't believe in ghosts. It was that they were getting conflicting pictures about the, the, the ontological status of ghosts. So they're being told on the one hand that believing in uh, fox spirits was a paradigmatic superstition and may even be a kind of psycho, psychological illness. And they're being told that possession was totally, couldn't happen. But at the same time, they were hearing about European mediums and seances and table turning. And so um, that was something that, that I didn't get to include in the first book because um, it just didn't fit in the other kinds of themes of the project. I published it as a short article or book chapter elsewhere. But um, I went to, back to Japan and was doing some research there. I didn't yet know what shape the project should happen. But um, um, while I was there, I thought it was first going to research the history of psychical research in Japan and try and think about how that was going to, how that fit into narratives about modernization. But while I was there, um, I was in Japan in um, 2011 um, when the earthquake and tsunami happened. And just the day that I was doing it, I was actually getting some touch-ups on some tattoos at a Japanese tattoo parlor that was also one of my ethnographic sites because they do um, a lot of tantric Buddhist tattooing. And I was in the, in, the, uh, in the room there sort of talking to people after we heard about the earthquake and tsunami and everybody stopped tattooing and we were all just looking at the TV and trying to talk about what was happening. Um, and, and people asked me why I was in Japan and I said I was doing research on Japanese spiritual and psychical research and people told me stories that they'd had about encounters with ghosts and, and what have you. But there was one other um, European uh, there and he sort of interrupted the conversation and he said something about how, oh, you know, Japan was so mystical and that, you know, nobody believed in that stuff in Europe anymore. And that really bothered me. And, and it bothered me because I knew a lot of practitioners today of various forms of Western esoteric traditions. And this is sort of the second origin of the project is that my grandmother uh, was a very famous anthropologist, uh, Felicitas Gutmann, who went, uh, so-called went native, that's not my formulation, but that's what people said about her, uh, on the Puaque Reservation in New Mexico and came to believe in the reality of spirits and in various kinds of indigenous uh, practices, the truth of them, basically. Um, and I, and I, from growing up, I was really close to my grandmother. She's probably why I'm a scholar of religion, um, insofar as that hat fits. Um, and I when she was quite well known and there were, and always there would be these somewhat famous intellectuals, not people who are famous necessarily outside the ivory tower, but who would come through and do practices with her. And that made me, got me to thinking, how unusual is this? How strange is it for academics, for, for anthropologists later, you know, philosophers, psychologists, psychoanalysts to be actually interested in things like spiritualism, ghosts, and the occult. And where did we get this story that the central feature of modernity in the West was that people had stopped believing in spirits, ghosts, and magic? In other words, where did we get this, what I came to call the myth of disenchantment? And so because I had to leave Japan in part because things just didn't look good for the kind of research I was doing, um, and part because you know, I, uh, I didn't want to get radiation poisoning and all these other things, I ended up in Germany. And there I was able to do... Um, a good amount of archival research, uh, looking at letters by, um, I both I did in Germany, in France, and in England, looking at these famous people who had founded various disciplines, but also um, who had first articulated this narrative or different versions of this narrative of modernity as disenchantment. Uh, the ver a version of it in um, you know, psychology, a version of it in anthropology and sociology, in religious studies. 
And by looking to their diaries, private correspondences, and otherwise less recognized published works, I was able to show that the narrative of modernity as disenchantment emerged in the middle of occult and spiritual survivals in Europe. It was not like, you know, there's a, there's, it's not a coincidence that like the um, mid to the late 19th century is full of both Europeans claiming that European culture is disenchanted and Europeans practicing spiritualism, theosophy, and doing occult revivals. And so I looked at the sort of co-occurrence of those and, and in the lives of many significant theorists and traced that narrative out. Over a period of time, I had to end up doing a backstory that basically takes me from about the 17th century uh, to the beginning of the 20th century, tracing different formulations, different thinkers, and different ideas. Um, and then I sort of, the little um, uh, icing on the cake is, uh, is I open with a very contemporary stuff, and I look at a lot of data, um, statistical data based on surveys, which aren't incredible, but across a number of European countries that show that the majority of people living today in Western Europe and North America believe in ghosts, uh, spirits or the paranormal, and the paranormal kind of comes to stand in for magic, and we can talk about how it functions similarly and differently but, um, uh, later, but something like 75% or 73% of Americans believe in one or the other uh, of some cross-section of those kinds of things. Um, and so that made me want to, you know, sort of think about how that myth functions. So it's sort of mostly history with a little bit of ethnography at the beginning, uh, and it's mostly European um, stuff. So that was what that book kind of was about. That's so interesting. And that's a, that's a really good point as well, because that's what I found in my practice, in my, in my private practice when I'm seeing patients. It's like, literally, I don't think I've ever had someone that at some point didn't said to me, like, I know that this sounds strange, or I, I don't want you to think I'm crazy, but this and this happened, or, you know, I saw my dead grandmother, or whatever. It's like, everybody has these kinds of stories and experiences. And after like years of like, everyone thinking that I'm going to judge them for having them. And I'm like, literally everybody comes in here with these stories. So like who invented this idea that this is not reality? It's like clearly everybody is not, this is a, clearly a part of human experience, the human experience. Definitely. And, and I think what happens is if you drop this weird story that the West is uniquely disenchanted, you see that there's similar patterns of beliefs across the globe. So we look less like an outlier. We only look like an outlier if you buy this particular narrative. But you know, to the extent that there's data about belief in spirits in places like Africa and Asia and you know um, other parts of the so-called third world, um, it's roughly comparable, slightly more of certain kinds of things, but not a lot. So you know, it, it turns out that there are. Um, you know, human beings in general, for whatever reason. I don't try and theorize about why. I, I mostly was interested in trying to figure out why we got the story that we didn't. But for whatever reason, I think it's quite widespread, especially belief in things like spirits. Um, and so anyway, so part of it was trying to analyze exactly that question. Well, how did we get the idea that the West was disenchanted? And then I locate that um, initially in, a, in a arguments in German philosophy in the end of the 18th century and how they kind of got amplified and became enmeshed in a bunch of disciplines and why different theorists um, and even different occultists got interested in narratives of disenchantment. So one of the other interesting things is that a lot of the um, people who we associate with occult revivals, like uh, I have a chapter on Aleister Crowley, for example, and um, another long, not quite full chapter on um, Helena Blavatsky. Both of them 
argued that the West had lost its magic too, but the difference between them and some other people is that they were bringing that magic back or they saw themselves or described themselves as bringing it back. So um, I wanted to show how this very narrative of a kind of mythless modernity or a disenchanted rationality um, was self-defeating in certain ways and, and actually brought about the very thing that it said was endangered and so, or, or reinforced it or helped bring it back. So that's, yeah, that was that project. Um, yeah, it was about a lot of thinking and then a couple of years of writing and research. So, yeah. And what is this you're working on now? I saw Metamodernism, the th Future of Theory. Yeah. Yes, that is the book uh, that I am, I just finished actually, like I finished on Wednesday this week. So it's, I was, uh, it was this, a crazy push for the last couple of weeks, but that's, yeah, that's what I'm working on now. Um, or it'll still be copy edited. So I'll have a little bit of uh, things, but I just got official full board approval of a revised version of the manuscript. So it'll be coming out in about a year. Uh, I don't have an official release date yet, but probably July, 2021, give or take. Um, and that's a very big departure for me because um, the two books I've done before have both been basically kinds of philosophically informed history or philosophically informed anthropology, more historical than anthropological. But, um, and this one is the first one that's actually a constructive project. It's a programmatic statement, not where have we been, but where should we go? And what it does is it attempts to, there are different ways to describe it. I'm not yet as practiced at, at describing it short, in a short way, but it's basically... So there was this period of time in the humanities and social sciences, especially in the Anglophone world, where something called postmodernism was really huge. And there's a lot of debates about what that postmodernism was. Was it an art movement? Was it, there was postmodernism in architecture, postmodernism so-called in fine art, postmodernism in literature, postmodernism in the academy. Those aren't probably the same things. Their overlaps were always a little bit tenuous. But in the academy, what, we, what was called postmodernism was bundled together theory imported into um, the American Academy initially by snippeting bits of French and German philosophical thought off and like sticking it together in weird ways and then re-exporting it to the globe. And it, sometimes aspects of it were called deconstruction or post-structuralism or what have you. Um, that sort of functioned as a dominant scholarly ethos for, I think, something like 30 years in much of the humanities and social sciences. I mean, it took a while to achieve dominance, but it started going really in the 80s. And then by the time I started my PhD program in 2001, it was already like huge and then beginning to fade. And so what this book kind of does is it departs from five philosophical problems that I think postmodernism was right to bring up, but then works through them to end up with something very different. And so it, it starts asking questions about um, what is the nature of the social world? What is the nature of reality? Um, how do we advance knowledge? Um, uh, what should the place of ethics be within the American or global, I guess, academy? And, and it, you know, it, has, it kind of answers about that, um, that I get there by doing this work through of skepticism that looks like turning skepticism inside out or radicalizing it rather than trying to resist it and return to some moment before postmodernism. So that's sort of rambling. I'm going to get it. By the time it's out, I'll have like a, like a one minute or two minute elevator pitch version of it, but it's, you know, I'm not yeah, but We there. have a whole 45 minutes. So you don't yeah, need true, a one true. or two minute pitch. <laughs> yeah. What do you think you're going to do next? Um, so I cut off a big chunk of that book 
that was around the question of power and causation. So there's this really huge question about what do we mean about causes and causation? So in um, philosophy, many people have thought that the Scottish philosopher David Hume has had proved that causation was just subjective. Um, but actually, there are a lot of reasons, I'm not the first to do this, but to, to think that Hume is, Hume is wrong, that, that there is a kind of, that causation, causality is a, is, a worth, is a useful category through which to think, anyway. Uh, and, it may not, and it's not just a projection of human minds, but it's also not limited to a kind of mechanistic causation that people, Hume was getting this from Locke and from others, but um, you know, this idea that of causes as being deterministic, as everything having only one cause, that causes are, you know, that people, we're not, they thought, you know, um, that this seemed to imply to many thinkers that humans were like robots or something like that, right? That version of causation doesn't work. But in the intervening really long period of time, um, there's been a lot more interesting philosophy about causation and recognizing kinds of causation that, um, like epidemiological causation or causation in physics that's probabilistic, that is um, related to, we could think about it in relationship to individual people and their decision-making. I mean, there are a lot of different ways to think about causation. And so one of the aims of that project is to re-theorize what we mean by a cause in the humanities. And when we say something caused the French Revolution, what are we really saying? Um, and one of the insights that put that together uh, for me as a book project is a, that I think causation is a relationship to accounts of power, because we also have ubiquitous notions of power in the humanities and social sciences. We, you know, we're, we're, we've gotten thankfully good at calling out power and privilege in different ways, but we've often done it with a very simplistic notion of power where you know, there, there's a Marxist threat of theorizing power, which has some utility to it. There's also a very strong Foucauldian theory of power. But most of that stuff is 70s or earlier. There, there's, there's not um, a really good theory of power at this exact moment. And I think one of the things standing in the way is that a lot of ways of conceptualizing power are in terms of one person's ability to influence or cause or um, get someone to do something else. Uh, get someone else to act in a particular way. And if you frame it in a particular way, that makes the problem of power a problem of causation. And those two things can come together. And by re-theorizing cause, it'll give us new insights to theorizing power. And so one of the things I'm doing in that project is putting that stuff together, kind of taking all the stuff on causation that I spent, like that was too long to fit into this book, and then now thinking a lot more seriously about its implications for a theory of power. Very so that's cool. the kind of stuff I'm doing. Yeah, I mean, it's fun. I'm, I'm in a very enviable position. You know, I have tenure. I've stopped um, giving a shit about what people think about, you know, what I'm working on. And so I just am following these things that I'm passionate about. I'm letting them take me in ways very far from the original kinds of things I was focused on, you know, trained to do in certain respects, although always within the realm of, you know, philosophy and history, basically. So not, not so crazily different, but pretty crazily different by the standards of very um, narrow and hyper-specialized academics. So, you know, I'm always kind of trying to move and change and grow. Uh, yeah. Yeah, and it sounds like allowing yourself to be more creative in, in thinking. Yeah, definitely. And not to be, I think a lot of people internalize, um, I mean, I'm sure that there's a good psychoanalytic way to discuss this, but internalize a kind of super ego, disciplinary superego. I mean, I'm, I'm being sloppy there. I'm sure you have more precise ways to think of that, but in which they 
they end up like reproducing the same arguments that were their advisors' arguments or the arguments that are considered the, the cool things to work on within a particular sub, sub, sub field. And, and for that reason, a lot of scholarship is really very similar to itself. I mean, you, you tend to get like parades of books that are slight variants on very similar topics that all tend to come up around the same time. Or you get like various traditions of intellectual thought where, you know, somebody's advisor does a book on John Dewey, then that person does a book on John Dewey, and then their student does a book on John Dewey. And then you're kind of, you know, these, these lineages kind of, and I'm not very interested in that. I, I, I personally am not interested in reproducing the kind of scholarship that my advisors did, although they were great. Um, and I'm not interested in trying to show people how rigorous I can do some arbitrary set of skills. I mean, I did that for the first book so I could get tenure. But after that, you know, I'm just uh, trying to find the most important issue around which I think I have something to say. And then, and then humbly reading as widely as I can in whatever disciplines are relevant uh, until I can figure out, you know, what, you know, figure it out in some way or another. Yeah. yeah, that's great. I find the same thing in psychoanalysis. Of course, a lot of psychoanalysis has survived, not through psychology, but through like the humanities and film theory and that sort of thing. Um, and it's gotten much more academic than it was, I don't know, 50 years ago when it was more just psychoanalysts and psychologists and psychiatrists practicing it. Um, but that's one of the frustrations I have. It's like when you read Lacan or Freud or, or any of the analysts, um, you know, they're working through things in their own way, I feel like. And then I feel, unfortunately, that a lot of students of psychoanalysis end up just kind of memorizing what they said or trying to understand what they said at certain periods. And I feel like that can be really interesting to study, like, what different theories were saying in different periods. But at some point, it's okay to, like, think, think what you think about it. You know, like, when, when do we get to the point where we start thinking our own ways of thinking that might differ from all these other theorists and, and might combine them or deviate from them, you know? I, I totally agree. I, I was doing a Skype lecture um, earlier this week, on Monday this weekend at Northwestern University. And one of the things that I sort of threw in as an aside was I was expressing my displeasure at the way that people often are very unclear about whether they're speaking for a specific theorist or being inspired by that theorist. Like, are they, like, are they trying to understand Freud or are they, and, and what Freud really thought or insofar as we can reconstruct of, I don't know, whatever, the pleasure principle or something, or are they just saying what if Freud inspires them to say about the pleasure principle? And, you know, and then in, in which case, and I, and I, and, and somebody got very mad that I said that. And, you know, he was saying, oh, he wants to be able to hide behind and not be clear about the, the theorists he's using. I mean, I can understand why, I mean, I don't want to knock that, that particular dude or anything, but, um, I, I think it, it can be really baffling to readers because I want to know when I'm reading something, what am I, what kind of information am I getting? Am I, what am I, how am I supposed to be evaluating this? Am I supposed to be evaluating this as a reading of Freud or am I supposed to be evaluating this because of its fruits, like what insights it's coming to? And I think if you're, if you're careful about which is which, then there's no problem at all. And I think, in fact, if more people were willing to do something without having to hide behind the authority of, you know, named famous dead dudes or whatever, and, and could just say what they wanted to say, I think we would be happier. And at least we would be able to focus on the, the really parts of the project that are often the most important to people. I mean, you know, I mean, I, I've, I read so many books in which the one thing that the author really cares about 
doesn't occur until at a conclusion, you know? And so you've read 400 pages of some in-depth analysis or reconstruction of something, but only at the end do they let them actually, you know, open up a little bit to say what they really think and feel or what really drove them to the project in the first place. And so that's actually something I criticize in this metamodernism book is that attitude toward the scholarly project that makes us try and, um, repress basically our own most deeply held beliefs and passions and 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 so that they you know and, and sort of obscure the constructive kinds of projects that we're doing i mean you know often we're in dialogue with other people and there's nothing wrong with that and i think and often there are unclarities i don't know sometimes what freud or what whoever thought about you know some particular topic but so i don't want to make it seem too cut and dry but i think people shouldn't feel compelled so much to hide behind masks yeah yeah, and have to. I feel like there's a lot of time spent like justifying what you're about to say before you say it, but not just like like a bit, but like like you said, like most of the book is like justifying why you're about to say what you're going to say, or like why it has a place in the history of thought or whatever. And then what you actually say is like the last chapter, like you said. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and that's a lot of waste, you know, a lot of wasted hours and, and a lot of wasted writing and a lot of wasted people reading things that, you know, I mean, sometimes the, the things along the way can be even more interesting, but it just depends. But yeah, I mean, you know, it's strange. Like, I think the Academy has a tendency to reinforce qu quantity over quality also. I mean, that's the other thing. And, and I understand why, because the pressures for particularly adjunct people, the adjunct treadmill is brutal. The tenure track jobs are few and far between. I mean, I think that there's some really fundamental reforms we need to make in the Academy um, on an institutional level. But all of those things have contributed to make people just try and publish like crazy, even when they don't have much of an idea. And also to make people publish in safe ways, safe projects that just, you know, are uh, yeah, very defensively written. And I don't think that's any good. And also senior scholars who just write the same book over and over and over again. For some people that's good and you deepen your thought and, you know, I don't want to knock it necessarily, but for some people it's just repetition. Like, why are they still publishing this? They've already published this book you know, five times, why are they, you know, Foucault's, these 10 years in Foucault's life, the next 10 years in Foucault's life, the next 10 years in Foucault's life, and you're only getting a little bit more information than what they did in the first book, you know, why is that? Why do they feel, what is the compulsion behind that? And I think some of that is a push toward productivity that means, you know, churning out a bunch of junk. Um, you know, ironically, by not focusing on productivity and just the joy of writing, I, I managed to find a little time every day to write it and I managed to get things written, but I think, that I'm, I think perhaps partially because I'm less alienated from what I'm reading and what, what I'm doing. Um, yeah, yeah. And I mean, from a psychoanalytic point of view, as a psychoanalyst, I, I love to see when people get that like spark of drive that wants, makes them want to create, you know, and I, I don't like seeing when people feel inhibited or feel like they have to justify what they're about to say. Cause even in psychoanalytic sessions, I feel like even with patients that, you know, people are always like, well, I know I shouldn't think this, or I know I should feel this. And even in session, you can see people justifying themselves before they actually say what they want to say. And it's like, just say it, just say it. <laughs> I just want people to speak more. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm not surprised. I think, I think people have difficulty expressing themselves in different ways too. I think also there's a long, uh, people are afraid of being judged and, you know, we live in, and there are different kinds of ways we can help create. I don't like this term safe spaces, but I understand some of what it's trying to get at. And I think, you know, the degree which we can produce 
um, safe environments for people to, or comfortable environments where people feel able to be open with themselves or open with others. I think that's really useful and really helpful. I try and do that in the classroom some, um, but you know, it's a challenge and the students know that I'm, I'm grading them. I would rather not be grading actually. I, I'm sort of against grading, but the institution makes us do it basically. So, you know, I, I have to jump through a certain number of hoops. Um, but, you know, I think, um, yeah, I mean, I would, I would make it all pass fail if I could. I mean, there needs to be some reason, some, I need to have like some stick to, so that otherwise other parts of their lives will get all the priority and they won't actually read the readings. But all I really want is to, is to them to actually take things seriously and read them and then talk about them. But anyway, you know, or, or write research projects if that's relevant or a skill they're trying to learn. Yeah, anyway, yeah. Conversation. How did you oh, find your way into your field in the first place? Um, both of my parents are academics. Uh, I tried to be, uh, to do other things. I was, uh, I played rock music, punk rock music for a while. Um, I was also, uh, trying to, I launched a film company shooting, shooting music videos, uh, that, uh, we were really bad about budgeting. We were actually losing money. We would shoot videos for, it took us a while to figure this out, like longer than it should have to figure that out. We were like shooting videos for bands. We were charging them what we could at market rate, but then we always had to different supplies and different things and film stock. And then we'd be, you know, and the three of us who were in this weren't communicating super well. And we ended up, we're just like losing money. It, it, we were neither, none of us were good at the money side of it. Um, and I was always good at the academic side of it. And so um, I kind of more fell into it. It was kind of a fallback. I applied to one master's program while I was finishing up with undergrad. And I thought, um, this is the best, you know, master's program in this subject matter. Um, to begin with, I want to do Asian philosophy. I want to do philosophy originally, but then the fact that in philosophy departments, people didn't take seriously Asian philosophical thought pushed me into a religion department. I did a film and religion double major. And so then I thought I would apply to like what I thought at that time was the best master's program for the study of religion with some great people who did Asian religion and Asian philosophy. Um, and I thought, well, it's a long shot. If I get in, I'll go to my, a master's program. If I don't get in, I'll find another day job to help supplement, you know, these other creative projects. And I got in. And so, uh, I, so I did that and I tried to multi, I tried to do all at once for a while. I mean, that lasted until I had to start writing my PhD. And when I started writing my PhD, like all my time for everything that wasn't the dissertation kind of melted away. Um, and then, you know, the other side of it, and then, you know, when I finished PhD, I did a dissertation on a topic my advisors told me not to work on. They said, I was like, you know, I'm interested in this reverse ethnography encounters. I'm interested in the category religion and the category science and how people, Japanese people thought about them. And they're like, well, if you're going to get a religion department job, you need to work on a religion. You have to have like a specific religion that you were the specialist in or they'll never hire you. And you need to write your dissertation on that. And I compromised partially. I said, I'll do exams in Buddhism. So I did, you know, I learned to read a classical Buddhist Chinese and I, and I you know, memorized, you know, a, a bunch of scholarship around Chinese and Japanese Buddhism. But then I just didn't do that for my dissertation. And I thought, well, I was kind of really naive. I applied, uh, basically, I applied for like very few jobs and uh, lucked out, ended up with a tenure track job and got tenure. And so that, you know, I ended up here in this small town in Western Massachusetts at the age of 29, having no, done nothing but school and some music and a little bit of film. And uh, yeah, and then they were for, for better worth, they tenured me. So here I am, you know, that's the way to put it, but I, I've kept alive some of the creative projects. So I still, I DJ a little bit. Um, I'm in the process of uh, co-writing a novel with my wife, who's a novelist. Um, so, you know, we're, uh, there are other things um, on the creative horizon beyond the scholarly world. I think, 
you know, again, I wish there were more things in the world like being a tenured professor somewhere. I think it's unusual in this society. I wish that there were the equivalent of more like tenured positions for artists, for, you know, psychoanalysts, for, for like a whole range of things, you know, of professions in, in our society. I think people, you know, they're, they're, you can see sometimes people abuse it, but I think for the most part, it's incredibly liberating. And I think that's when people are able to be both less alienated from their lives, but less alienated from their work. And because they, they don't have the same kinds of pressures on them. So, you know. And they're able to think outside the box and be more creative in their thinking and their work. Yeah, which I think benefits people in general. I mean, I'm a big believer in the arts and I, uh, as well. And I just really think it's, it's such a shame in the United States in particular, how little the arts are taken seriously, how little funding there is for the arts, um, how much, you know, I mean, there've been various attempts to revive museum culture, but it's still mostly posh upper class, you know, people and school trips or whatever. I mean, you know, there's, there, yeah, anyway, there, there could be a lot more. I mean, I think even though I, uh, there's a lot of complaints in Western Europe, my, my sense is that the Western European funding for the arts is better, you know, like, even though it's not as good as it used to be, I have, you know, my French friends who complain quite a bit about how art subsidies have been cut in France, for example. But um, anyway, yeah, the U.S., it's, uh, it's especially a shame here. Yeah. yeah, they complain here in Sweden too, but compared to the US, it's like wonderful. So yeah. <laughs> there's tons of funding. <laughs> there's actual funding at all. Yeah. So that, that, in that in itself is a difference. <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, even humanities research is, is not very funded in the US. So, I mean, the last two sabbaticals, I just got back actually um, right before the COVID thing hit from Leipzig. I had a six months in Leipzig, Germany. And I've spent two sabbaticals in a row now in Germany. And just the, I mean, it's cool, but also the funding for humanities research actually exists there. Humanities, social science research exists there in a way that it almost doesn't in the U.S. I mean, it's, they're very, it's very STEM in terms of what people will fund and with a very narrow sense of, of what that looks like. So, yeah. Exactly. Um, what are you and your wife working on? Uh, so we're working on a post-apocalyptic novel called um, Child Ballads. And we were working on it actually for a while before our current moment feels like a soft apocalypse in certain ways. But we were been working on this now for almost two years. Um, we, um, we've, uh, so it's called Child Ballads. It's inspired by a collection of songs um, of Anglo-Scottish border ballads collected by a man named um, James Francis Child in, um, uh, he was a Harvard professor who went into the Anglo-Scottish border and recorded these very old ballads uh, at the end of the 19th century. And these ballads, probably the most famous one that people still know about is Scarborough Fair, but many of these are, ball they're, they're these really fabulous ballads of um, love and murder and fairies and ghosts and all these kind of these this sort of uh, very late medieval early modern world and so what we've done in this novel which is I think the first in a trilogy um, we wrote it yeah, anyway is um, we've set them in a post-apocalyptic Britain in the same area that the ballads were originally told and we've adapted some of them basically into different um, stories with a set of two protagonists that kind of move through them. Um, and so it's, uh, and we've, and we're also, so, we're, so yeah, so I guess it's sort of a tales of love and murder uh, in a post-apocalyptic Britain. And then the other sort of piece that gives it an extra hook that's not from the ballads themselves was the insight that 
a lot of medieval stories, and just like a lot of the ballads, the people who are committing violence and having violence done to them are children. So one of the, so the child ballads is also reckoning with one of the protagonists is a child soldier. And so it's kind of imagining what uh, his life would have looked, would look like in this sort of post-apocalyptic Britain that is in some ways reverting to or reinvoking these late medieval, early modern traditions. So anyway, it's a, I think it'll be a lot of fun. Um, we're really close to done. I mean, we've done, uh, we wrote a draft of the, of what, basically all three of them, but as one book and realized it was way too much for one book. And then we've finished a first complete draft of the first book and we're in the second rewrite. And we're just trying to put the finishing touches on it and start querying agents at the end of the summer. Uh, so if there are any agents listening to your, to your podcast who happen to want, uh, want it, I mean, we could always go with the press that published my wife's first novel. Um, I don't want to knock that, but I also think that this, what she went with a sort of smaller, more indie press, but we, I would love it to be even for, for something, you know, to get it in the hands of more folk. Um, so uh, anyway, child ballads. Wonderful. What's your wife's name? Uh, Delina Storm. Oh, cool. My yeah. husband is also an author, and oh, we're really? actually writing a novel together right now. Wonderful. <laughs> What's that about? Tell me about that. Um, it's interesting because we're, take, we're doing it in an exquisite corpse-style way, where he wrote the first chapter, and then I wrote the second chapter without even reading what his chapter said. Wow. And then, then we did start reading each other's writing after that. Um, so then he like kind of wove in my, my second chapter into his third and so on. But I also do a lot of work with cut-ups and like cut-up poetry, oh. like in William Burroughs kind of style. And I had been wanting to write fiction. This is the first time I've written fiction. Yeah. I had been wanting to write fiction and trying to integrate the cut-ups into it like Burroughs did. Um, so I've been like making cut-ups as part of, uh, the novel in these like weird dream sequences where like what, one of the characters, she kind of spaces out a lot, <laughs> like ends up in these like weird dream worlds and oh. then comes back into like the, the storyline again. Um, so yeah, right now we're like, I don't know, maybe like six chapters in and, wow. um, so far, we don't know where it's going to go. That's what's interesting. Um, but so far, it's got like a murder mystery in it mm. with like some burnt dead bodies um, mm. that have been discovered by a detective. And then my story go, starts in Jujuka in Morocco because uh, mm. we went there last year. And like this couple going to Morocco and like meeting a bunch of friends there kind of by happenstance, which we actually did. Um, last year and then now the woman from my kind of storyline is is kind of hooking up with the detective from the other storyline and I don't know where it's going to go from there that's wonderful I mean it sounds like that very organic writing process is going to lead you in very creative and interesting directions I think I mean that's really cool yeah I think it's I mean, going to be fun yeah that's really fun I, I, I really think that it it adds something to a relationship to be able to collaborate on a creative or you know other kind of level too I, I mean I think it's been fun for, for me and my wife to, to do that, to do our version of collaboration too. Um, you know, also because we have a, a, a daughter who's just about two. And so we started writing it. We finished the first draft right before she was born. We had wanted to do it. And then we took some time off from it. And then we returned to it again when we were both able to kind of devote our time to it. But it's, uh, it gives us one more thing beyond the parenting to kind of work together on. And so it's, it's been really fun. Yeah, yeah that's great. Is, I'm a little bit more um, of a structuralist. So uh, like we, 
like structure out the whole, we tried to, I tried to like plot out the whole long arc and then like, but then, you know, when you actually sit down to write it, it doesn't, you can't make it fit that structure or it becomes dead and lifeless. So, you know, so we're kind of, there's a, we have more of a like architected structure and then, but then it surprises us and then we have to figure out how to re-architect it or something like that. And um, yeah, anyway, so yeah, we're, we, we take turns. I do a lot of the world building and the grand plotting and my wife does a lot of the characterization and thinking about the, the detailed descriptions and things like that. So we kind of trade off that way, basically. Yeah. That's so great. I'm going to check that out when it comes out. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. Is there anything else you wanted to mention that we didn't get to? Um, let's see. So I think, you know, for viewers of your podcast, the thing that people are going to find probably most interesting about this, I just, I'll just tell you different things that different readers might find interesting for the, for our viewers might find interesting um, for folks who are interested in the history of occultism and Western esotericism and its entanglement with um, various intellectual figures. Uh, I, the whole book, that's basically what the whole book is. But if you're just interested in, you know, Freud and Jung, um, Freud's uh, interest in telepathy and his, his dabbling with spiritualism, how that fits into the German occult revival, how that actually relates to earlier ger German philosophical experiments with uh, the, the with ghosts and what have you there's like one chapter here basically it's chapter seven you can probably just get that chapter somehow if that's the thing that you're interested in you can probably i won't tell you how but find a pdf of just that chapter uh um and, and read it but i think that 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 i hope readers would find that interesting because i find a lot of interesting stuff like um one of the things that i um caused me to think about freud in particular is that there is a, a footnote in um in the interpretation of dreams where he refers to someone called the brilliant mystic Carl Duprell. And Freud doesn't, you know, throw around like brilliant mystic. That's not, you know, something that, that you would have necessarily expected from Freud. And so I started wondering, well, who was Carl Duprell and what's his story? And part of what that chapter does is it traces that out and it shows how Carl Duprell in particular is, that was this very influential, um, uh, interpreter of Kant and also mystic who used the term equivalent to the unconscious before Freud did, but who had a kind of um, Kantian Schopenhauerian notion of a something that uh, a, a kind of something that you can also see echoes of in, in Jung's idea of a collective unconscious, but a, a kind of an unconscious that allows you to transcend the boundaries of space and time. That was, was one of Duprell's uh, things that he's getting from Schopenhauer, but it's part of that conversation. Uh, and so um, anyway, so I trace that out. So readers um, who are interested in any of those sets of things might find them in that chapter of the book. Um, and then otherwise, I think, yeah, this, it's sort of, you know, historical. I think the complaint I've gotten, um, it, I, there are a lot of thinkers in here. So um, you may not care about them all equally. Uh, so, you know, know that as you go into it. But it uh, provides sort of a historical thing uh, in the first couple of chapters and then a bunch of case studies, basically. So it was a lot of fun to write. There's a lot of fun, cool, interesting anecdotes in it. So, you know. Who else is uh, in there? 
Uh, so there are chapters on um, Francis Bacon is where I start. So uh, and his interest in um, alchemy and his early attempt to describe a um, basically a science of magic, what we call science. I mean, he's considered by some the founder of modern science, but he was interested in alchemy. And he was actually, in a way, trying to make what in his day was called magic into what we now call science. And so I, I let's trace that out. Um, and then I talk about how uh, the French philosophes, uh, Diderot, D'Alembert, and others um, had notions of natural magic and articulated ideas of a science of the spirits that was supposed to be part of the enlightenment, not the enemy of the enlightenment. Um, then the chapter after that I, is, is where it really gets into the origins of this notion of disenchantment and history of German philosophy. And I, I focus particularly on Hegel um, and then on um, uh, Schiller, uh, Hulderlin, and uh, Burkhardt. And I talk about how in the 18th century, German theorists got this idea that um, modernity was mythless and what, what is myth and how they define myth and how they imagine that a myth had been evacuated from their particular historic moment. Um, so I'll hit a few more. A chapter on the anthropologist E.B. Tyler and how he went to seances, uh, a bit on um, the founder of religious studies, Friedrich Max Müller, and how his relationship to a famous French occultist named Eliphas Lévy, uh, a, chap a bit on Helena Bovatsky and the birth of theosophy, uh, a chapter on Fraser, James uh, Gordon Fraser, a famous Scottish anthropologist um, and classicist, and, and his connection to a notion of a despiritualized universe. Um, then a chapter on how Aleister Crowley read Fraser's Golden Bough and turned it into a spellbook. So it was a, the early text of disenchantment that then becomes a book of magic. Uh, then there's the then there's the, the Kant Freud chapter. Then there's a chapter on the birth of critical theory, uh, a, a German neo pagan intellectual um, named Ludwig Klages, and how he influenced uh, Adorno, Horkheimer, and uh, Walter Benjamin. Uh, a lot of, on Benjamin there because I'm kind of into Benjamin, or I was for a while. Um, then there's uh, finally there's a chapter, or near finally there's a chapter on the positivists, uh, the Vienna positivists, uh, Carnap and Neurath and others, and how they did psychical research and how Wittgenstein was interested in mysticism. Uh, then a chapter finally on Max Weber, which is where it sort of begins and sort of ends although people have mistaken this for a book about Weber. Weber is really only just a case study. He's just the one that formulates a particular phrase, the Entzauberung der Welt, the disenchantment of the world. Um, and I show that he formulated that phrase while vacationing at a neo-pagan commune and how he hung out with a bunch of occultists, basically. And then that's the, that's the end of the book. So, um, yeah, a lot, it's kind of dense. I seem to write these really long books, and then the press always wants them to fit in a certain page count. And so then I end up like, they kind of get freeze dried and sucked down to like the, just the, a lot of dense material. Um, or at least I end up cutting a lot of examples basically. So, um, and a lot of quotes and I, which is funny because I got into this, uh, you know, a lot of my early training is as a philologist. And so I got into this cause I love to translate. And so, but I, almost the translations are always all the first thing that gets cut. Like I, you know, I'll, I'll translate the key sentence here or there, but instead of translating, you know, pages of, you know, uh, Weber's diaries, I just quote the, the one line, you know, even though like in the first draft, I translate the whole thing, you know, and uh, so anyway, that's the, that's sort of the scholarly thing. And I cut a bunch of chapters uh, that I published separately on Japanese ethnographies of Western spiritualism, uh, for example, is one that, that's uh, just come out. Um, anyway, that kind of thing. 
Yeah. That's great. And a lot of these papers are linked from your from your webpage on the Williams site. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, you can go to my web my Williams webpage. Uh, and I also have a blog, which is uh, absolute-disruption.com. Um, and there, there's some additional content related to the book. There's a description of the Metamodernism book, um, which is very slightly outdated, but it's still there. And then there's also stuff related to the first book and then some blogging about dystopia. I was really interested in this question of utopian dystopia and what the um, what alternatives there are to capitalism, sort of. Anyway, so there's a bunch of that um, there. So you can also find that or there are links to that blog on my professional webpage. If you Google Jason Josephson Storm, you'll find me. Uh, I think if you even go Google Jason Storm, you'll find me um, just on williams.edu is the relevant page. Um, mm-hmm. I'm also on Twitter, although I sort of detest Twitter. Um, and I'm only there uh, periodically to post things about work. Like I think I feel weird about Twitter because it's so... It's a good, so good professionally, and I don't want to knock it for that purpose. Uh, but I don't like to expose my personal life to that scale of out of controlness. So if you follow me on Twitter, you, you'll get reliably tweets about my work. But you know, and you can get from my likes my politics, which are pretty on the surface anyway. But otherwise, uh, you want it's yeah. I, I think about it as a more professional than some of the other places. Yeah, I, I keep Twitter for that reason too, just po- to post about the podcasts and books and things that I'm doing. Um, I feel like as a psychoanalyst, I can't really say anything personal at all online, which is fine with me because I probably wouldn't anyway. <laughs> but uh, but I met so many great people on Twitter. I'd like, I, I feel like a third of the people on the podcast have come from Twitter. I see something going by and I'm like, that's interesting. I want to talk to that person, you know, so... I like that's it really for cool. that reason. Yeah, yeah. And I think that sounds like you're using it in a good way. I mean, I think I tend to alternate between, like when I, when I get on there, because a lot of people I follow are, are political, and this current moment, there's so many things that it's easy to be outraged about. I often find myself just feeling more outraged. And, uh, but I hope, you know, I, know I, I alternate between being pessimistic and optimistic about the fate of certain things. So we'll just see, you know. I think we all do. <laughs> feeling pretty hopeless and then pretty like, wait, maybe there is hope. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> we'll see, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's great. And I think I'm going to turn my husband on to your work as well, because we actually met because um, when I wanted to do this the psychoanalysis in a cold conference, I was originally going to do it with another psychoanalyst. And then I was like, I should probably do it with an occultist. And he he's more in the uh, he calls himself a magico anthropologist, where he like studies anthropology, but but specifically like the magical practices of different people. And he really feels that like magical practice is like the basis of everything, all of culture and everything else. Um, yeah, but I think he also really is interested in like Jap- the Japanese thinking, and I think he would really be interested in your work. So, oh, thank you. Yeah, tell me his name so that if I run across him, I'll it's Carl Abrahamson. Mm, yeah. I'll email it to you. I can send you books. Yeah. I can send you a book from the conference that we did. Yeah, that'd be great. I'd love to see it. Yeah. Yeah, I'll send you one. Cool. Is there anything right. else? I also oh. want to hear more about your grandmother. Oh, um, so have you ever seen a movie called, I think the English title, uh, the, wait, the Possession of Emily Rose, or was it The yeah, Exorcist? Yeah. Exorcism. Anyway, that's based on her book, uh, The um, Exorcism of Annalise Michelle. So she's, uh, 
uh, and so she was a famous anthropologist who did, um, who worked on this case, the um, Annalise Michel case, which is one of the last major possession cases in contemporary Germany. This uh, a girl um, believed that she was possessed. Um, her parents uh, performed an exorcism um, and she died. Uh, they took her off of, psycho, uh, of psychological medication and she died. And then the, uh, my grandmother was brought in to kind of, as an expert in um, glossolalia, speaking in tongues and ecstatic trance, and then um, was there to consult about whether this girl was in fact uh, in an alternate state of consciousness or not. Um, and my grandmother ended up saying that she was in an altered state of consciousness, and then later um, my grandmother uh, after doing fieldwork um, in New Mexico, started to believe in spirits herself. So she came to believe not only in um, the importance of trance studies and trances, but also in ability to access the spirit world. And so she published a bunch of books. Um, there's, um, but yeah, the Annalise Michelle one is probably the one that got the biggest um, the biggest reaction. But you know, she founded an institute that's still there in New Mexico, and there's a branch of it in Munich, uh, and. Um, in München, and uh, yeah. So anyway, Felicitas Gutmann is her name, and you can look her up. She's got a Wikipedia page. Uh, I don't yet, but uh, she does. Uh, she's a really amazing woman, um, absolutely amazing. And my parents would leave us because they're both academics. So I would spend summers with her growing up. My parents would do their work, and you know they would leave me and my brother sometimes with with my grandmother for the summer, and she would uh, tell us these sort of fabulous stories. Uh, from different cultures all over the world. She'd done field work um, in the Yucatan, in, uh, in Japan a little bit, in um, um, you know, a, a bunch of different communities. And she just had an incredible just world of stories. Um, and she believed a lot of them, so I mean, or some of them. So uh, that, was, that was really great growing up. Yeah, and I, she comes up at the very last chapter. I kind of uh, out myself there uh, just in the conclusion here. And so you can, if you, when you look at this or when people reading look at this, if they don't remember what I've just said, it, she's talked about at the beginning of the conclusion. Yeah. Cool. Well, thank you so much. Sure. That, that was, was great really talking fun. to you. Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a discussion with Dr. Jason Josephson Storm. Links to his work can be found in the text accompanying this episode. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry. Available from Trapart Books, 2019. Please visit our publisher's website, www.trapart.net. You can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash v-a-n-e-s-s-a two three C-A-R-L. Your support is greatly appreciated. And now, The Hierophant of Lead by Carl Abrahamson and Genesis Briar Peorage From the album, Loyalty Does Not End with Death From Ideal Recordings
I worship at the gate of night. Flames dance, burning nothing. Light of an exception. On days like these, we go home to the old planet when as a child we felt our roots in space. This is a word for the ignorant, a bliss for the wise. Heads, heads smooth like tantric eggs, I surmise. My priestess is too, and she knows. My priestess is too, and she knows. If ever there was a desert, it is of no response. From the heart we stare to the blessed, my children, my children only. Sometimes I feel so conscious Awake enough to spill a tear or two. Two for myself. Two for myself. Two for my priestess. Two for myself. The great hole goes dark. A vortex as earth eats, falls apart. Each seed ejaculating like the executed. As fools burn glass and dreams. Dreams we call robes or ego. Dreams we call robes or ego. They're wrapped around us, all ego, all ego, all ego. Do you remember the broken ring, his son, the hierophant of lead, wiser, dead, wiser, dead, wiser, dead, the hierophant of lead. I worship all priestess and child. I worship all priestess and child burning the old home burning the old home burning the old home burning the old home